This is Draco Malfoy and the Wheel of Hecate, part four of the Mirror of Isidiru series by Star Bridget. Chapter one, Maledictum. It had taken more than three years since Draco awoke from a nightmare of a mirror he could not break. But finally, Lucius Malfoy had seemed to come to the realisation his son might be powerful, or at least that there was something unspeakably wrong with him. Maybe it was Draco's suspiciously quiet behaviour over the summer, save for his insistence on attending the Muggle World Cup final with the Grangers, to the point of threatening bodily harm to himself as well as others if he was not allowed. Maybe it was the handful of visits that Theo paid to Malfoy Manor that summer to play Quidditch together, which father had put a stop to, once mother overheard the two boys earnestly discussing whether it would be possible to bring the basilisk in the Chamber of Secrets back to life as a reanimated corpse. Maybe it was the means with which Draco and the Grangers travelled to Pasadena, by a portkey Draco told his father he had bought for them, by perfectly above-board means. Father seemed to know Draco had illegally made it himself, with no way to prove it. Maybe it was their safe return of their party to the Grangers for his following stay in Hampstead, showing the portkey had worked, which it damn well should have given the amount of that summer Draco had incidentally spent devoted to the research of the objects. Maybe it was how, on the day of Draco's return, Mother caught him sitting on the ground under the portrait of Grandfather Abraxas, discussing young Voldemort, though, in Draco's defence, that was just to ask some questions from Luna about him. Or maybe it was that on the night of the 3rd of August 1994, Father caught his son performing unforgivables on a frozen lot of two dozen of the manor's finest cave spiders, all waiting in a line for their turn to be tormented. To Father's bewildered bellowing, Draco had whined, whether father would have preferred if he had been practising on the elves, upon which he had actually rather gotten the impression of an affirmative. But it disturbed father more than Draco would have anticipated, enough to prompt one of their grand doomed attempts to replace Draco's wand which never bore fruit. He didn't get within a block of Ollivander's this time either, and all three Malfoys had the feel as they went, that it was more of a ceremonial occasion than a practical one. At dinner that night, neither of his parents resisted Draco's attempt to turn the conversation to a more interesting subject, namely the string of victims coming forward in the papers after having their memories restored, with tales of being obliviated by Gilderoy Lockhart. Father pronounced himself unsurprised to hear the ex-defence professor's supposed heroic deeds had not been his own. Style over substance can be excusable in a man, Father said lip-curling, but only if it is in good style. Draco could only think Severus would concur and missed him all the more. So the wand issue was ostensibly dropped but father continued his threats to leave Draco home from the Quidditch World Cup if he was so fond of the Muggle one, and upped the ante by threatening to keep Draco from visiting his Gryffindor friends there. Unlike the first, 
which father would never do when they'd been invited to the minister's box. The second was an absolutely practicable threat, for father to do everything in his power to keep Draco away from the Weasleys. Draco submitted to the magical inspection father ordained, and came obediently to the cellars the next afternoon, for an appointment with the man father only referred to as the assessor. The assessor turned out to be a somewhat eccentric-looking wizard, perhaps in his mid-thirties or forties, with the look of a Slytherin about him from a block away, vampirically pale skin, waist-length black hair going charcoal grey that gave his whole frame the look of an old rotting garden statue, and eyes half the size of his head of a distinct, chemical-looking violet. He was not quite as tall as Draco, or he would not have been, had he not been wearing red dragon-hide boots so high that he loomed over father as well. He introduced himself as Pamak Periander, claimed to actually be a Ravenclaw, and wore robes of dark burgundy mottled over by feathers from the silver bird called Maledictum he kept on his hunching shoulder. Maledictum was very large and a very striking mintish silver green. Her mournful ice-grey eyes, Periander said she was a her, trained exclusively on Draco from the moment he entered with his master, to the point that as strange as his master seemed, Draco had difficulty paying attention to anything but the bird. Periander seemed used to this and complimented Draco on his eye for magical creatures, when Draco correctly identified her as an augury, a bird that could detect rain and repel ink with her feathers. He was more impressed when Draco said he wasn't taking care of magical creatures at Hogwarts. Draco had taken it in the blue line and learned of auguries there, but even if he'd wanted to tell the stranger that, his tongue would have locked itself up against the roof of his mouth. I know people used to think these birds could predict death, Draco said, and that was disproven, but of this bird, from the way she's looking at me, I believe it. The bird, young gentleman, Periander said with a cringing sort of laugh, is blind. Her name, though, Draco mused. Is it just maledictum after the Latin for curse, or could this creature be a maledictus? I hadn't thought auguries ever. Draco, father said through gritted teeth, Mr. Periander is not here to assess your magical creature knowledge. He is here to test the nature, strength, and potential of your magic. Now I suggest you give him the chance to request some of you and stop wasting all of our time. Father seemed anxious enough, and Periander seemed eccentric but competent enough that this almost seemed a genuine attempt by father to help Draco. Nothing could be more foreboding. Fine, fine, Draco sighed though he'd been hoping that hobnobbing with the man would tend him towards a more charitable assessment. And this bird would prove an interesting anecdote for Hagrid. Not that father would listen to that consideration of Draco's, with anything but a certain suppressed willingness to practice some unforgivables himself.
Very well, Mr. Periander. Assess me. Of course, young gentleman, said Periander, with a half-grimacing flash of the unnaturally whitest teeth that Draco had ever seen, and pulled out his wand, gesturing for Draco to do the same. No need to be nervous. The procedure is simple and will take less than half an hour. Mr. Malfoy, these cellars are secure and reinforced. Father nodded tightly, seeming disinclined to spend any more time than necessary with this odd assessor, which he was suffering through for Draco's sake. We will begin with a test of your raw magical power, Mr. Malfoy. You may wish to stand back. Father's lip curled, and he did not move a muscle, but Periander did not enforce it. He merely murmured into the ear of Maledictum, who flapped her great iridescent wings and left him to fly to the furthest ceiling of the cellar from them, perching on the old rusted manacles that hung there. With a pecking of her beak, the rust came off the manacles in a slow shower of ruddy dust, and the chain unfastened and grew link by link until it reached the floor. When Maledictum made a final flight around the chain, its links went from dark iron to a silver as the bird. Not a convenient test for werewolves, Draco said drolly, and Periander had the grace to make that grimacing smile. Indeed, young gentlemen, we begin with the elements. Draco hesitated before casting. Mr. Periander, should I hold back? Periander eyed him cannily while Draco wished Father was not nearby listening so closely. Are you in the habit of holding back when you cast, young gentleman? Your father has told me all there is to know about your wand. Have you found it difficult to control your magical power? Draco nodded, finding himself more nervous than he had ever planned to be, at this exam of his old self in the blue loop would never have been given. Relatively average the first Draco Malfoy. Yes, sir. It came out unwittingly, though he was no longer in the habit of ever calling his own father sir. Something about this man or his bird unnerved him already, or perhaps it was some slight physical resemblance he bore to Severus. But when I let loose its full power, it's often exhausting. Exhaust yourself, young gentleman. Periander said with a flicker of his icy eyes. We begin with the elements. Enchantment of the earth. He tossed a golden set of seeds at the foot of the silver chain. Grozzy rose with the herbivicus charm. You are familiar? Good. Pour your magical energy into the plant, and once it is grown, ensnare the chain with it an attempt to wrest the chain from the ground with its vines. Yes, sir, Draco said, and closed his eyes before casting. Herbivicus. Without a conscious dam on his magic, the charm worked faster than he expected, or perhaps it was something in those golden seeds, which turned quickly to a string of golden roses curling around the chain in the entwining motions Draco made with his wand. He sent one stem up through the right side of the link, another through each left, and a third to entwine all around the base of each chain and pull. 
The roses quickly began to lose their golden petals once Draco cast Herbivicus again, and the flowers began to try to grow their mutated way outward, rapidly looping weight, pulling on the chain. Draco could feel Father's gaze burning a hole in his wand. It made him push defiantly into the spell, where he knew he perhaps should have held something back, but he didn't, and it didn't matter. The chain never seemed to budge an inch. Very well, enough. Feel free to use any other earth magic you know. Periander had seemed to expect more from what he'd been told. Draco just stood there, unwilling to admit he wasn't exactly Neville Longbottom when it came to plants, and finally Periander seemed mercifully to get the hint. From earth to water, cast the following, aqua eructo. Draco did, and a blast of water sprayed out from his wand over the silver chain, which swayed and trembled from the impact, but did not budge from its place in the stone. Good, said Periander, and the three watched as the water dripped down into the well below the manacles, where once blood from prisoners had surely flown. He cast Glacius wordlessly, preventing any excess water from reaching them, and then Evanesco to make it disappear. Your goal, young gentleman, is to make the chain come out of this stone. Use any other water spells you know to attempt this feat. Aguamenti, Draco yelled, and stressed into the spell, but found its pretty clear stream barely strong enough to reach the chain. Aqua eructo duo, aqua eructo duo. Draco tried, and the chain swayed harder, water dripping down its glimmering links, but showed no sign of budging. Father had stepped up on the threshold of the door to the cellar room to keep his shoes from getting wet or his person from being hit by the spray, before casting a shield charm on himself with a wrinkled nose. Aqua eructo duo! Draco cast a last time, and the blast rebounded so hard off the cellar walls that it soaked both Draco and Periander to the bone. Periander just smiled and cast a hot air charm on himself and the shivering Draco. Without needing to be bid, Maledictum flew forward and flapped her wings until the water almost seemed to dry beneath their accumulating heat. So far, Father ought to be less impressed by his son than the bird. Unfortunately, Draco suspected the creature was not for sale. From water to air, cast the Ventus Jinx and attempt to blow the chain from its place. This charm was more of a mainstay of Draco's, and he knew the feeling of pouring power into expelling it. He remembered his attempts to destroy the mirror of Erised in first year, and called out Ventus with confidence expecting to blow the chain from the floor and possibly off its hinges at the top right away. But the chain merely rattled. Draco closed his eyes, imagining the murky, inky blackness that came out of his wand or spell sometimes, when he was less restrained. The shadow that had greeted his claiming of the talon wand. The wind that blew out was blacker then, but did not budge the chain though Draco felt it whip his hair back over his cheeks, only the rose clasp keeping it pulled back. Whatever spells you wish, Periander said again. Ventus duo, 
Draco tried, but was frustrated so quickly by the lack of desired impact that he went quickly to Ventus Tria. He closed his eyes and concentrated, pushing his wand forward and envisioning a dark wind tearing the silver chain into individual links. His eyes opened when the wind blew his clasp from his hair, despite the expensive protective enchantments on the small bauble Potter had gotten him. The chin-length blonde strands began to whip around his face, catching over his parted lips, teeth gritted hard in concentration. He bit his lower lip, staring into the darkening spiral of wind that was fast becoming a tornado, and heard several snapping and cracking sounds he almost thought had to be the chain giving way. But when Periander told him to stop, the tornado cleared to reveal the chain intact, even if some of the silver on it had rusted away. Periander had to send his bird over to restore it with some elegant sweeps around, her wings giving off a scent somewhere between anise and rotting flesh. Potter, Draco thought with self-loathing, Potter would have already obliterated the chain. At last, from air to fire, Periander said, and turned to father. Your son has been stronger in each element in turn, but strongest by far, so far in air. Perhaps with a name like Draco, fire will be stronger yet. And didn't that give Draco a lot to live up to? I take it, Draco equipped. When you say I can use whatever spells I want from the start, those don't include fiend fire. That startled a laugh from father for once, while Periander seemed to take him seriously and gravely shook his head, stroking his bird protectively on his shoulder. Cast the incendio charm, Periander instructed, and yes. When you have finished your efforts with that, you may try any other fire spells you wish, although indeed not fiend fire. Draco grinned at the strange man's shudder. Incendio! He doubted it would have much effect, and it didn't. He smirked to himself before getting on to what he really wanted to do. Ever since his cousin Nymphadora had cast this at him during their deal at Grimaud Place, he'd wanted to try it. He'd found the spell soon after his birthday, and had no small amount of fun practising it throughout these cellars. Lacanum inflammare! He didn't hit the chain directly the first time, but the very blasting of it passing still rattled the chain more than anything had thus far. Lacanum inflammare, Draco cast and hit directly this time, and the chain shrieked like a living thing. Draco grinned, opening his mouth wide and imagining the flames expelling not from the taloned wand, but his throat, like a real dragon. He called it out again and again, Lacanum inflammare, Lacanum inflammare, Lacanum inflammare. Each time, the ball of fire it produced was bigger. Draco began to laugh, as the lengths of chain lost their silver and went rusted and dark, and then blackened like wood left in a fireplace too long. Lacanum inflammare! Lacanum inflammare! The air was filling with smoke. 
Draco's hair and robes whipping around him with eyes hurting from the brightness of the fire. But Draco was having too much fun to stop. Lacanum inflammare! A fireball larger than Draco flew out of his wand and crashed into the chain, ripping it from the floor and off its hinges from above, the chain and the manacles crashing to the ash-covered blackened ground where they began to crumble. Draco raised his wand again, only for a distant voice to call. Enough! Young gentlemen, enough! Incendium glacius! Incendium glacius! Periander had to cast the flame-freezing charm time after time, to very little effect on the gathered fire before them, taking up more than half the room now. Draco himself had little more success, until finally Maledictum had flown forward and beaten her wands over it. Where their beating had seemed to produce heat before to dry the water, now it was merely air that beat out the flames. Father! Draco called excitedly. Father, I did it. I broke the chain, father. When there was no answer, Draco frowned and looked around. Father? He could see his father nowhere in sight. Periander cleared his throat in audible embarrassment. Your father had his shield charm broken by the blasts. He has retreated, I believe, most prudently so, to a safe distance. He looked genuinely alarmed when that made Draco laugh. Careful, he said in a softer voice. Careful, young gentleman. Such power can be experienced as most intoxicating. But there is a price to its intoxication past exhaustion. That price is one that maledictum knows well. Father returned, having found the coast was clear before Periander could explain his cryptic bird-related remarks that led into the final part of the assessment. Can you conjure an animal? Periander asked Draco, and Draco nodded. Serpent saltier? Draco cast. When he looked back at Father, he found his father looking windswept and shaken not so much by the spell itself or even the size of the glimmering green snake, but rather by the careless ease with which Draco cast it. What should I do with it? We have tested the elemental nature of your magic, strongest in wind and most of all of fire, and the strength of each element. I will speak to your father later of the meaning of all this. We must, first though, end by testing the darkness of that magic young gentleman. Have you ever performed the unforgivable curses? Draco looked back at Father, who gave an impatient nod as if to say, He won't report you. Get on with it. My hair needs serious fixing right now. Draco nodded. We will begin with the imperious curse. Imperio? Draco cast and he might as well have been a parcel mouth for how eagerly the snake coiled up in front of him, ready to obey. What do you want me to make it do? Draco smirked down at it. Hiss at my father, he called, and when it let out that requested hiss, he could hear father jump back and had to stifle a laugh. Periander sounded strained. You have successfully demonstrated your command of Imperius, I would say. Let it go. 
Now, try the Cruciata skirts. These skirts may be more difficult as you need to truly mean it. Crucio, Draco said, and had the snake writhing in pain before Periander could finish his sentence. Practice had made it much easier to draw in the concentration he needed. Besides, with his father in the room, it was never difficult to summon up enough negative energy. Enough? Enough, said Periander. Now, finish it off. Sectum Sempra, Draco cast. Though his magic was beginning to feel thin, the slashes appeared in the snake just as envisioned. Draco, father said with a knife edge in his voice. That was not the killing curse. It's gonna be dead soon, isn't it? Young gentlemen, Periander asked, I must ask you to perform the killing curse, only for the purposes of assessment. Maledictum made a shrill call. I haven't ever done that, Draco said, shivering as he stared into the faces of the men willing him to kill, while the snake bled to death underneath them. I don't ever want to. Draco, if you do not, the assessment will be incomplete. Father sighed and Periander said, The beast is dying already. You will be putting it out of its misery. Kinder this way. Draco closed his eyes, took a deep, shuddering breath, and called out Avada Kedavra for the first time in his life. He had to call it out again, before that unmistakable shade of electric green light that only appeared in his worst and best dreams, exploded from the talon wand, and sent the snake's spasming, foaming head abruptly still. Come, Mr. Malfoy, Periander said, and led Father up the stairs, perhaps to deliver the results of the assessment without Draco. He probably wasn't invited, but his legs wouldn't make the effort to follow them anyway. The intoxication was gone. He was left alone, staring down at the results of his work. Except not alone, because Maledictum had beat her great silver wings and descended to feast on the remains of the Slytherin Green snake. It took two weeks for the full results of Draco's magical assessment to come, a delay apparently resulting from some complicated process surrounding Maledictum. Draco wondered if the bird had to wait to fully digest the innards of the murdered animal before working on it. Nor did Father give Draco any hint as to what they said. All Draco got was a dark look before he crumpled it up in his palm. When Draco raised his wand to summon it to him, Father waved a hand to wandlessly burn it to embers. Mother wrinkled her nose as the cinders drifted towards her soup. Not at the table, dear. Those results Draco had been eager to know, but the result of Ireland-Bulgaria he already knew. He had to go to the Quidditch World Cup and pretend not to know it all the same. Still, he had new experiences to look forward to in visiting his friends in the tenth city, whereas his father had only taken him by side-along apparition to the forest point, soon before the match began in the Blue Loop. He'd learned a trick of getting the results he wanted from bargaining with father, Ask for something he wanted to give you even less than what you actually wanted. Then it was easy to get him to back down to what you were really after, to avoid the seemingly greater evil. 
So it was that Draco secured the lesser evil of visiting with his friends before the match, instead of his first false request of visiting after. Father was naturally dismayed at the idea of Draco spending time with Muggle-borns following Ireland's victory. But Draco could play wide-eyed and innocent, and Father agreed to arrange for Draco to spend all day at the match site beforehand, if he consented to leave right after with Mother. Innocence was particularly easy to feign, given that unlike in the Blue Loop, Father did not give any warning of events that were to ensue of a less festive complexion than Quidditch. Draco thought it displayed a singular lack of disregard for his son's welfare, but he wasn't complaining, if it got him a chance to see the Lovegood's tent. When Mother apparated in with him and then away by herself on the morning of the final, his first goal was to locate his cousin. Luna had been there a week already with her father, helping him put out human interest stories surrounding the cup. He'd be able to recognise her touch in some of the reports, with or without her name on the byline. With a subscription to the Quibbler, as her birthday gift to him this year, he'd been able to jealously follow along by the paper as well as by her bright, incoherent letters. He remembered the moors from the Blue Loop, but only knew the city of tents from a distance. For a moment, the image his eyes gave him of the sunrise over them was blotted out and replaced by a green skull and snake, flashing back and forth at its first sight. He stroked his wand in his pocket and reactivated his tracking charm on Luna's necklace. Avensaguium, he whispered, and felt that tug towards the ramshackle shantytown of flaps in every colour under the sky beckoning already with some elusive feel of the calm and acceptance his cousin's presence tended to bring in him. He did not have to follow the tug far, before he caught that bright flash of white blonde hair, spilling down a small shamrock-covered back and called out, Luna, how's my favourite cousin? It would have made his old self shudder severely, bellowing of a purported family relationship with an unbearably common girl and family, for all and sundry to hear. But he felt a strange sort of pride now, being able to claim the owner of a uniquely radish-shaped foil-pink tent to be his cousin now, all the more when that owner turned out to be dressed as a leprechaun. Draco, she called excitedly, waving both her arms full of copies of the Quibbler World Cup Final Special Edition. Draco waved his wand to levitate a few she dropped, saving them from the muddy ground. Look, she said. When he safely levitated all her papers, her hands were free to show him the necklace she wore, the chain of real diamonds he'd bought, along with the robin's egg blue spiral of turquoise were dramatically at odds with her island green suit. He felt the tug to it and tapped it to drop the spell, before enfolding Luna in his arms, copies of the quibbler merrily dancing around them in the wind without dropping, while the sun finished its rise to full splendour above them. So you're selling copies? Draco asked, and she looked nothing but proud of it. It's a special collectible edition, she said chippily, showing off its metallic green foil cover. I want it then, Draco laughed, directing one to his bag with his wand. Three sickles, please. Luna put them in a large, fluffy, snitch-shaped purse on her waist. 
That's so cute, Draco said, thinking of Ron's new owl from Sirius and imagining it collapsing under the weight of a few coins. Thank you, Luna said, and then her eyes widened with what she looked to find a marvellous idea. Would you like to help me sail them? Draco almost immediately rejected the idea out of hand as impossibly demeaning, but why not? And so it was that Draco spent the morning exploring the vast spread of tents over the moors in the capacity of paperboy, teaching Luna the charms and motions to send the papers spiralling in a green cloud around them. On the way, Draco bought himself a long, lavish, deep green Ireland scarf worth three galleons, four separate rounds of candy flosses for them, and charmed to temporarily turn both of their hair a delicate, pale mint green for the occasion. Luna declared it suited him with his scarf and dark green robes. It certainly suited her, her waving pale green mane flowing free behind her in the breeze like a flag, drawing the attention of more customers. By the time Draco's watch read noon, they were both so sugar-high their hands were trembling. They both kept dropping coins into the grass, trying to fit them into Luna's overflowing purse. It was in such a pose that they were found by Pansy, Millie and the Greengrass girls. In the blue loop, Pansy had written him letter after letter, trying to get him to get her a seat with him in the minister's box, and on his continued refusal, she had refused to hang out with him in the cup. He hadn't realised she had still gone, just down mingling with the plebeians. He could only imagine what she thought of him, green-haired, selling floating quibbler papers, with a cousin decked out as a leprechaun, fishing fallen sickles out of the mud. Oh, Draco, you look so cute, Pansy shrieked. All of the girls but Millie made similarly high-pitched noises of agreement. Their collective green garb was not actually a mark of their house, but Ireland garb of their own, albeit more feminine and becoming than Luna's. They fawned over Luna's hair as well as his, and Astoria Greengrass even complimented her green suit. According to Luna, Astoria was the friendliest of the Slytherin girls in the lower years, and often talked about Quidditch with Ginny Weasley. Not like that exactly spoke well to Astoria's taste in people from Draco's perspective, but she seemed genuinely appreciative of Luna as well. Thank you, Astoria. I like your scarf as well, Luna said politely. Apparently they knew each other as well, and fell in beside her talking about their summers, as the Slytherin girls, wonders never ceasing, insisted on helping them sell the remaining copies. With the green grass girls on the case, they had sold out before they had to stop for lunch. An amazed Luna said she hadn't expected to sell them all in the whole day and night. They sold like hotcakes, even in the small knot of Bulgaria-decked tents, the supporters eager to add the quibbler's fold-out poster, a scowling crumb straddling a large British lion, to flags of scowling crumb already streaming above them in the wind. They sold the last two copies to Dean Thomas and Seamus Finnegan, decked out in green. They made faces at Draco for calling it Slytherin green, but perhaps not as dramatically as they might have, if he hadn't had this many Slytherin girls beside him. Why is Malfoy surrounded by girls? Dean laughed. Doesn't even like them and he's like the bloody Pied Piper with them. 
That's right. Hermione and Ginny were asking after you too, Draco, said Seamus, and smiled at Astoria and tried to introduce himself. She slipped behind her sister and Luna, her supposed friendliness disappearing, and elegantly pretended Seamus didn't exist. Understandable. Dean and Seamus directed them to the Weasley tent, upon which the Slytherin girls found excuses to be elsewhere, and Draco tried casually to ask who else had come. Luna saw through him, as the mere thought of who could be there sent him nervously fussing with his hair. The golden rose clasp still worked, although not as well as it had before all the snake blood had gotten on it. Luna let out her airy giggle. Oh, there's someone specifically wants to be there, she said knowingly. Draco fought the urge to cast De Primo on the ground to make a hole to crawl inside, until she added, A certain dragon tamer? And Draco's shoulders relaxed. Dean and Seamus looked scandalised. Wow, Luna, that's dirty. Dean laughed, and Neville said you're a nice girl. Luna looked blank. Oh, Neville mentioned me. If you see him, tell him I said hello. Luna hadn't understood the innuendo, just as the Gryffindors hadn't understood she meant it literally. She means the dragon tamer Weasley, Charlie. He used to be the seeker for Gryffindor. Right? Seamus said, nodding. He was the last one to catch the snitch all three matches in a year before you, right? Exactly, said Draco, which is why I want to meet him. He leered and leaned in to say for the boys, but not Luna, to hear. It's not at all because he is said to be gay, totally fit, and his profession gives me the opportunity to make all kinds of dragon-related innuendo. All right, Luna said, who always had better hearing than was convenient, and seemed to have belatedly caught up with the dragon-tamer insinuation. Like how you'd like him to team you with a swap as well? Draco shook his head, trying not to laugh too much and encourage her as they left a scandalised-looking Dean and Seamus. We'll play footy together back at school, yeah? He called backwards at Dean. Yeah, Dean called back. If you survive the whip! Draco wiggled his eyebrows before turning back to Luna with more of a wind. Bloody hell, Luna. However much that year with Riddle corrupted you, I'm afraid much more time with your favourite cousin will finish the job. Luna got that darkness in her pale eyes for a moment. That mention of Tom always seemed to put it there, before she put on her usual false cheerfulness. Tom didn't corrupt me, she said brightly. He educated me and expanded my mind. And made me a murder puppet, but no one's perfect. You still curious? Draco asked, lowering his voice as they passed tent after tent, pulling her aside before the hem of her long coat could catch on the violet fire some wizards were using to cook. About him and my grandfather Abraxas, I talked to his portrait, asked your questions. Yes, Luna said before looking down and chewing on her lower lip, downcast enough for once that he had to hold on to her arm to keep her from walking into any tents. They walked past a tent tethered with live peacocks. Draco fed them some remaining candy floss from his bag. Sugar had always gone down a treat with the manor's albino ones, 
and these looked much less fierce. Father says it's not healthy for me to think about him so often, that I should forget that time in my life, pretend it never happened and move on. But I don't see how I could even if I wanted to. It seems more useful to try and understand it somehow. I'd like to think surviving it made you stronger, Luna, Draco sighed. Though more often having something terrible in your past just makes it harder to keep moving forward. She took his hand and looked up at him, as if he was some kind of actual authority. Do you think it made me stronger? she asked, a ruefulness in her pale eyes that made her look more rare and unusual than ever, as separate a changeling in the riotous waking world as he was. He put an arm around her while keeping her hand in his, and tugged on her long pale green hair. Luna, Draco said. I didn't know you before, but whatever it's done, it didn't make you weak. You're more fearless than any Gryffindor I know. She giggled, remarking on how unhappy her classmate Ginny would be to hear that. Draco refrained from remarking that he would enjoy witnessing Ginny Weasley experience as many forms of unhappiness as possible before asking for details on Riddle which Draco censored somewhat for her tender young ears while conveying the essentials. Yes, the other Slytherins in his year had heard he was a muggle-born, but he'd impressed them enough that no one had ever dared bully him, and they'd all known he was a half-blood descendant of Salazar Slytherin by the time he graduated. Yes, before their graduation from Hogwarts, Tom had formed an organisation of proto-Death Eaters, and yes, it had been called the Knights of Walpurgis, although apparently it was no relation to Walburga Black, thank Merlin, after what Draco had done to her portrait. Luna seemed most interested, as he'd feared she would be, at the reports he'd managed to secure of a sexual relationship of some sort between Riddle and Abraxas. Abraxas had denied it thoroughly at first, but eventually the temptation of nostalgia had won out, with Draco's promise of secrecy, He'd waxed poetic about the many attractions of young Tom Riddle, both as a wizard and a man, until Draco was hard-pressed to get him to stop. It was clear by the end how much of Abraxas's initial loyalty to the Knights of Walpurgis was from a personal hold of Riddles over Abraxas, as opposed to mere ideology or political ambition. Politics sounded at least initially to have been a mere convenience for Abraxas, to ease his way to aligning with a man he already wanted to please. It had justified any contortion, in order for a moth to stay near green flame. It made Draco wonder, none too pleasantly, about how many early followers of the Dark Lord had been acquired through personal magnetism, and a hands-on form of manipulation. It turned his stomach, with the associated memory of the noseless wonder he had known at Malfoy Manor, and the aunt who had adored him much the same in her time as well. Do you think he manipulated women the same, or just men? Oh, look, here we are. The two tents in the area marked off for Weasley were predictably patched, colourful and shabby, and presumably enlarged inside if they were to have any hope of holding both Weasleys and guests. At least they had a strategic position, close to the pitch as possible, which would help with all the fleeing from Death Eaters. Or would it hinder it, actually, putting them closer to the action? Draco hung back at the door, 
wanting to finish the conversation as well as giving himself a moment before he had to face those guests. Yeah, Luna, riddle-controlled women, too, Draco said, voice going heavier. He wasn't exactly a gentleman in that regard. I know at least one woman who couldn't have been more madly in love with him. He took out his talon wand, turning it to show her who he meant without having to say the name. Emphasis on the mad. Luna nodded solemnly. Yes, our Aunt Bella. So, do you think it was all for manipulation with one or the other, or do you think he liked both? Draco snorted curtly. Wouldn't put it past him. Not a great role model for bisexuals, but... Bisexual, Luna said thoughtfully. That's when you were attracted to both genders, right? Draco shrugged. Yeah, it is. I don't happen to be, but it is a real thing. Even if people haven't heard of it, or like to put people in boxes, or claim they're indecisive, or lying, it's real. Bisexual. Luna echoed, and then another voice echoed it too. Bisexual, that's when you like both. I think I might be that, said Harry Potter. It was indeed Harry Potter who had emerged from the tent and spoken those words. Harry Potter, older than Draco had last seen him, a little less elfin or ethereal and a lot more solid. He was not nearly as unappealingly emaciated looking as one might have hoped, from those plaintive descriptions he'd written of his muggles starving him. He had hair curling in dishevelled waves past his ears now, thick dark eyebrows drawing the eyes forcefully to the brilliant green of his eyes, more of a sea-green ocean colour than ever in the sunlight of noon over the moor. Somehow, while his face had grown into his nose, his eyes just seemed to have gotten even bigger. It was Harry Potter, who had said that one word to ruin everything, from a boy whose every inch was chillingly perfect, from the toes in old trainers kicking a pile of firewood out of their way, to that soft, thick hair currently played with by the fortunate wind. I, uh, yeah, Harry said falteringly. I mean, I I talked a lot to Sirius this summer, over the two-way mirror you sent me, and he helped me figure it out. Yeah, I like both. Draco remembered, Harry pressing a kiss to his cheek the last time they had seen each other living school. Now those same lips said bisexual. It took too long for Draco to remind himself he was still who he was, and even a bisexual potter would snog, say, a sentient umbrella or a basilisk's corpse sooner than Draco Malfoy. His cheeks felt those lips against it, as if it had only just happened. He would have to offer an explanation to Luna for how stupidly it paralysed him. And Luna could see, surely, what a statue that one word from Potter made a Slytherin. Malfoy, dark wizard, death eater, coward. So much more paralysed than it should. Because it had nothing to do with him. Except Luna, bless her little heart, was jabbering away as nonchalantly as if Potter had speculated on the sexuality of some distant acquaintance and not the most famous boy in the wizarding world. Oh, Harry, that's wonderful, Luna said, and patted his hand. Draco nodded in awkward agreement. It is quite good to be open about these things. Father's written in the quibbler about all kinds of dark witches and wizards who've tried to suppress dark secrets about themselves, 
not just who they fall in love with, but the nature of their species or magic, or even their magic itself. Did you know that when a child grows up with his or her magic completely suppressed, they can create something called an obscurus? We wrote about those a few years ago. Although sometimes the word is confused with what's called a maledictus. Maledictus, Draco said suddenly, seizing on his first chance to change the topic. I met a maledictus this summer, I think, or at least a maledictum. Did you? Luna exclaimed, seizing his arm again and pulling him into the weaselly tent. Oh, Draco, how fascinating! You should have told me sooner. Luna was much more intrigued by the story of Maledictum than Potter's revelation, and devoted herself to dragging out details about the augury from Draco. Draco avoided looking at Potter as much as he could, and devoted himself anew to entertaining Luna, telling himself over and over all the while, it has nothing to do with you. He'd sooner snog a basilisk's corpse. Thank you for listening to this chapter of Draco Malfoy and the Wheel of Hecate, part four of the Mirror of Isidaru series by Star Bridget.